Welcome to episode 169 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. My name is Chris, and joining me is Shane, and we are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So we're, we're going to continue on from where we left off on episode 165. Shane, how does that sound? I think that's a good idea. Yep. <laughs> we're, we're pretty so it's tired. about time. <laughs> yeah, it's about time. We're, we're pretty tired today still. This is the second episode we're recording from um, both of us having late nights, uh, last night Shane out camping and me out uh, out doing astronomy uh, about an hour outside of the city. So uh, anyhow, so we're just, we're just going to continue on with the uh, autumn observing uh, part two. And uh, so I've been teaching a class um, on, on autumn astronomy and the constellations and everything you can see. And in the first episode, we had talked about uh, the history of, of the stars and, and deep sky objects and, and all that kind of material. And in this one, we'll, we'll talk about the constellation. Shane, how does that sound? I like it. So what's the main constellation of autumn? If you were to pick, like, what's, what's center? If we think about the winter sky, we think about Orion. If we think about uh, the summer sky, maybe we think about the summer triangle or Cygnus or Sagittarius or something like that. What would you say? What's your, what's your go-to autumn constellation? Um, I would probably say Pegasus, the, the yep. great square of Pegasus. Um, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it, it just sort of becomes the anchor of the autumn sky for me. Yep. Um, and, you know, just off of Perseus, um, you, you can get to the Andromeda galaxy and, and really a whole bunch of other things, right? You, you know, it just sort of, uh, some, like in a way, like there's the, the, the summer arc, you know, like there's... There's a lot of things you can kind of navigate to off of Pegasus that make the autumn sky uh, really interesting. And if there's if there's one thing that screams astronomy, it's being square. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's a throwback to the 50s. <laughs> like I said, we're a little tired today. Okay. So when when I'm teaching astronomy classes, I, I find that um a lot of the time, not all the time, and everybody's different, but a lot of the time I do get the, okay, I know one or two, or maybe people know a few constellations or a few stars and a few constellations. Typically people have, have become familiar with um, the Big Dipper asterism of, of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, but that sort of saucepan asterism and, and sometimes Cassiopeia and Orion and a few others. And, but they want to learn the other constellations and, and more stars or a lot of the other constellations and, and more stars and be able to, to find some of this stuff for themselves. So um, I always recommend people starting with what they know or kind of learning those, those basics of finding um, the Big Dipper and, and Cassiopeia. And then uh, Polaris uh, sort of sits somewhat in between them, sort of not really like straight in between them, but Polaris is, is the North Star um, that's easy to find, but coming out of the uh, bowl of the Big Dipper about 30 degrees and your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees in the nighttime sky. Um, yeah. So, so how do we use our fist to navigate the nighttime sky, Shane? Uh, well, the fist held out at arm's length is essentially 10 degrees of the sky. And, uh, it's just, um, it, it's like a, almost like a standard that is true for pretty much everybody in terms of how we're built that if you, you know, if your fist is larger, it usually means you have a longer arm. So no matter, you know, if you're tall, short, big fist, small fist, it, it's basically 10 degrees, no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just stick the arm out as far as you can, 
make a fist, that's going to be 10 degrees sort of projected onto the nighttime sky and makes it really easy to navigate because if we say something is 30 degrees, that's just three fists. And typically we're not going to go much more than 30 or 40 degrees. And if you go from the horizon directly overhead, that's 90 degrees. So how many fists would that be, Shane? Oh, nice. oh, a little bit of math for you here today. Yeah, yeah <laughs> this is not fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's nine. Yep, yep. All good. All right. So sort of diving a little bit uh, into uh, Ursa, Ursa Mage, the big bear. What's what's wrong with Ursa Major, Shane? What's what's the problem with Ursa Major? <laughs> in the winter, like in the fall? Well, anytime. What's wrong with this pattern of stars? Oh, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. You tell me. He's the, the bears don't have tails. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh I've never really quite understood the bear reference, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. It kind of does. Is that sometimes the head though? Like the handle, or am I wrong there? Has it always been the, the tail? I I don't know. I yeah. I thought you know kind of the depiction on on the right in my little little uh, notes here for you is uh, is sort of how I always saw it. I mean, kind of does sort of kind of sort of maybe in an odd way look like a bear. Maybe maybe yeah maybe. Yeah. The interesting thing is is multiple cultures um, in you know history have seen a bear in that part of the sky, which you know. Means you and me are wrong. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There we go. And as well, like when you're running away from a bear, you don't know if it has a tail. True. 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 Yeah. So fair enough. Yeah. So Ursa Major, that is the uh, that is the great uh, bear. It's been seen as a bear, like you said, by many uh, different civilizations from many different cultures from all over the world, and uh, might stem back to an oral tradition dating back as far as over thirteen thousand years when uh you know different different hunters were uh were using those stars to uh to navigate um and it's one of those uh sort of original 48 constellations as described in Ptolemy's El Majest from I think 190 AD ish or something like that. But up there in Ursa Major and it kind of does look like I mean the main part is that saucepan or that dipper shape eh? like there's those other stars that help to fill out the bear if you so want to want to trace them out but for the most part it's that it's that uh that dipping gourd or the, or the saucer that we see eh? yeah yeah those are the brightest stars of the constellation and uh typically even in most urban settings no matter the light pollution you're likely able to pull out the big dipper although i i think there might be a few cities where that is still a, a challenge yeah you can see it. You can see it here from our city, no problem. Yeah, yeah, quite yeah. easily. Yeah. yeah, even even in like polluted areas. And then, if we go up and out a little bit further on the bowl, you can find a lot of uh, deep sky objects up there, like M eighty one and M eighty two. That that pair of galaxies. So, um, what what do these little galaxies look like through the backyard telescope? Well, one one's an edge on, and the other one is more face on. So. You know, even a small telescope, the one galaxy will look like more of a straight line, whereas the other one will look more ovalish. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have telescopes of significant aperture, um, the the one that looks like a straight line is often referred to as a as the cigar galaxy because it sort of has a like a little bit of a dust lane or a dark spot that represents or, or can kind of uh, resemble a, a cigar wrapper. Oh. And uh, um, so. You, 
you can sometimes see that through larger apertures. And what's really cool about these galaxies and really uh, like also applies to like Virgo and, and there's another, or there's, uh, there's many other galaxy uh, clusters, but I'm always um, really in awe of seeing multiple galaxies in one field of view, particularly when they're fairly bright and you can see some of the, the you know, uh, like kind of not really structure, but shape of them. Um, you know, and then just to think or, or, you know, about how many stars are in these galaxies. And it's just very humbling when you see them in one field of view like that. Yeah. So these are just sort of, uh, just, just off of that line, um, to, to the right of that line or to the, uh, west of that line and maybe Northwest of that line, uh, going from the, the pointer stars of the bowl of the big dipper, uh, to, uh, to Polaris and uh, the face on that's M81 and the edge on is M82. And uh, when you look at them, you, I can, you can see them in binoculars from a reasonably dark site. So uh, I can find them in my seven by 35s, no problem. And then through, uh, through like Mike's 12 inch, you know, you can start to see some of that spiral detail in uh, M81 and definitely um, you can see the sort of the broken up pattern of, uh, of M82, that, that sort of cigar type, uh, galaxy there that you referred to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It, they're wonderful galaxies in, in really any instrument that you have. Kind of on the, on the other side, near the end of the handle of the big dipper or the tail of, of this strange monster, um, bear that we have, um, we have M51, Messi, uh, 51, which is another, uh, galaxy and and then uh, there's there's a companion galaxy to that as well. But M M fifty one is one of those galaxies where you can you can really begin to see that spiral structure there in the twelve inch instrument. Eh? Yeah, yeah that that's one of the uh, more more distinct uh, like uh, galactic arms that I've seen visually through a telescope uh, is M fifty one through the twelve inch. Um, the, the arms really are under a good sky. Like, you know, you definitely need some darkness and good transparency. Um, it's unmistakable and Mm -hmm. it is really, really cool to see. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of galaxies up in Ursa major when we're looking, um, at this portion of the sky, we're looking out towards, uh, intergalactic space away from our own, uh, galaxy. And so we're going to see other galaxies floating in amongst sort of the sparse stars of our, of our own Milky Way. But, uh, but really, this is the realm of, of other galaxies up in Ursa Major. Though there's one, there's a planetary nebula, M98, the Owl Nebula, um, which is just, uh, just about inside the bowl, inside that front bowl of the, of the Big Dipper. But there's all kinds of messy objects up there. I'm not going to go through all of them. But do you have, do you have any other objects up there in, in Ursa Major that are favorites or interesting ones that, uh, that you like to look at, Shane? Well, kind of. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the Hubble deep field uh, oh, images. Yeah. And um, those were somewhere pointed out, uh, you know, uh, like in the direction of Ursa Major. And, um, you know, I'm, the backstory there is it was an area of sky that wasn't believed to house any deep sky objects, that it was sort of void of this stuff. So uh, the Hubble deep sky, uh, the first uh, phase of that or the initial mission or I don't know, mission isn't the right word, but, um, uh, project, I guess maybe, um, you know, they pointed the Hubble at that spot in the sky and imaged it for hours and hours and hours. And then, you know, we're somewhat, I think surprised to see a whole bunch of galaxies and 
now I think they're up to three or four versions of the deep field from Hubble. Mm. Um, but anyway, very cool. Whenever I look up at Ursa Major, I think about that, um, that we're looking away from our galactic center, really. And, and we're looking, you know, quite a ways into the universe there. Cool. Yeah. And Ursa Minor. I actually looked at Ursa Minor last night and uh, could fit the bowl of Ursa Minor in uh, in my Borg Mini 50. Easy. No problem. The bowl fits in there. <laughs> That's awesome. Pretty cool. Um, right between Ursa Minor, though, and Ursa Major, sort of the Ursa Minor is the Little Dipper. Ursa Major is uh, the Big Dipper or the Big Bear and Ursa Minor being the Little Bear. Um, they kind of look more or less uh, about the same. They're always sort of opposite in the sky. So right now, the in in the autumn, uh, in the evening sky, the Big Dipper is just like grounding. It's coming down on the horizon. For us, it just sits above the horizon. And if you get much further south than where we are, um, you start to lose the stars of the Big Dipper uh, altogether. In fact, I think we lose like parts of it as as we get further in, into the autumn uh, evening sky here. But um, I, I guess like if you were in Florida, probably the whole of the Big Dipper right now would be below the horizon, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think you're right. Um, I remember in, yeah, it was, a, it was, I think November, a couple of years ago, I was in Cuba and uh, was looking at the North sky and I was a little disoriented because I was looking for the big dipper. Cause that is always like my, my feature to sort of orient myself in, in the North sky. And I, I couldn't see it. It wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but they're always opposite in the sky. So, uh, you know, if you can find the Big Dipper, like if it's on your horizon, like it is for us right now, um, the Little Dipper sort of just be opposite. You come out of the bowl of the Big Dipper um, three fists and you'll find um, a bright star up there. Uh, that is Polaris. That's our pole star. And then the Little Dipper kind of stretches out um, from there. And it pretty much just looks like the Big Dipper, like a like about a you know, what, about a quarter-sized version of it or, or something like that. And they're always opposite. You always think that they're pouring into one another. So when the Little Dipper is overhead, the Big Dipper is on the horizon or maybe below your horizon. And then, um, you know, come come the winter or spring, the Big Dipper is overhead and uh, it's pouring into the Little Dipper, which is still uh, more or less about in the, in the same uh, location. It's just differently oriented. So the Big Dipper is pouring into it at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's much smaller and the stars are not quite as bright, uh, in the little dipper. So it's not as prominent. Um, but when, you know, it's another one of those constellations, once you see it, you, you don't unsee it. So what's special about Polaris? Tell us about Polaris. Yeah, it just, it's a chance alignment that that star just happens to be uh, pretty much at the exact point of the Earth's axis. So, you know, the Earth rotates 24 hours uh, a day on its axis. And um, uh, because the North Star or Polaris um, resides right on that point, it's the only star in the sky that doesn't appear to move through the night sky. And, you know, the way to prove this out is with uh, star trail photographs. Uh, I think we've all seen them where somebody will point their camera at Polaris and then do a long frame exposure. And you see all of these, you know, beautiful circles, well, you know, which are the stars as the earth rotates, except Polaris is usually like a static point. Now it's not exactly on the axis. So, you know, some of these photographs, it may not look like a perfect point of light, but you know, visually it basically stays in the same spot the whole night. Have you ever taken a, uh, an image of Polaris over the night to see those star trails? 
Yeah. Yeah. I did once uh, when we were at Grasslands. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, maybe you can tweet that out sometime. That would be yeah, that's a good idea. I'll have to dig that up. Yeah. Cool. All right. Moving, moving on. We'll talk uh, next about uh, some of these other autumn constellations. We'll talk about Pegasus, the great square, Shane's go-to autumn constellation, <laughs> the winged horse, winged horse what, what what were they smoking winged well, horse yeah who knows um huh, crazy. Fun, maybe funner times right funner times yeah better times probably better times yeah so it does look like a large square and it's it's very large so when i uh am am trying to uh, convey this to to the people who take my class you know i said well go out and look for a really big square you know, that's what you're what you're looking for. And uh, since this is the area they're really starting with, it can be sort of difficult to, to find the square the first time. And, uh, you know, back when non during non-pandemic times, when we can go to a, a reasonably dark site and sort of have everybody gathered around, I point out, that, oh, that's it. Holy cow, that is big. Like it is really, really quite large on the nighttime sky. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Like if you if you look at other constellations and you sort of get used to that scale, um, you know, when you see the, the, the great square Pegasus, it's, you know, it, it doesn't seem to follow that same scale <laughs> that the other constellations have, you know, it, it is much, much larger. Yeah. I think it's like close to 15 degrees aside or something like that. Something like that's close to that. Yeah. It's huge. Quite, yeah. It's, it's really quite large. Think about a fist and a half on each side or anyway, it's around that size. And that usually is what surprises people. It contains a lot of faint galaxies and uh, it contains like that, that star 51 Pegasus, which is home to uh, the first known exoplanet. Mm, That's interesting. Mm. You ever track that uh, 51 Pegasus? It's not that faint. Did you ever track it down? Nope. Nope. Not, Fun, not intentionally. I'm, I may have had it in a field of view. I'm, but. I'm sure you've, well, it's, it, I think you can see it naked eye. I think it's only around that. Oh, five, okay. There you something, go. Or maybe sixth magnitude. So you, you've seen it. I guarantee yeah, you've seen it. For sure. So. Um, but yeah, you can. Anyway, uh, hard to trace out though. It's, it's an upside down front half of a winged horse. There, there's not like a good image that pops to mind when I think of that. Hmm. No, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of strange. Yeah, and in mythology, it was uh, uh, Perseus was the one who decapitated the Medusa, at least in one of the stories. And uh, anyway, it, it, there's a relationship um, to water there as well, because Pegasus comes from uh, a Greek word meaning springs or waters. Pegai means springs or waters in, in Greek, although I'm not a Greek speaker. Um, and uh, there, there's often... Although not always, but there's there's almost always a connection either directly through the name or through the mythology of these autumn constellations and water for uh, I think for seasonal purposes at least when these uh, constellations were first um, you know being uh, created you know back probably you know who knows like I said like maybe thirteen or more thousand years ago um, there was some sort of connection with uh, with water um, let's see. So there's 51 peg. I put it's magnitude 5.5. Yeah. So easily seen in binoculars mm-hmm. and yeah, from a dark site, reasonably dark site should be able to see magnitude 5.5 there, Shane. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just on the Western side. It's about halfway, uh, between the, um, 
western uh, side of uh, the square. And, uh, you know, it, it's among the brightest stars there. It's just outside. There's, there is another fifth odd magnitude star halfway in between just on the inside of the square. This one's the one on the, on the outside. So almost like couldn't be easier to find that star. So that's pretty cool. You can hunt that one down just based on that description alone. Then we have uh, Messier 15. I love looking at Messier 15. That's one of the best Messier globular clusters uh, visible. So Shane, again, what is a globular cluster? Um, so one of the, uh, one of the oldest collection of stars in our galaxy. Um, and really it gets its name because it's a dense collection of stars, usually uh, numbering, I think in the thousands, like it's, it's not a small or insignificant amount of stars and they really represent like a globe or a ball and uh, usually appear as sort of fuzzy circles to, to us through our instruments. And if you have a larger instrument, you can sometimes then uh, make out some of the individual stars uh, within the cluster. Uh, and in almost all cases, they have a very dense nucleus, so a very bright core. Um, and usually it's, it's so dense with stars that you're not going to visually uh, be able to make out individual stars in the middle of, of the cluster. And Messier 15 or M15 is in the south uh, western portion, sort of in that head region of, uh, of Pegasus, where, where its head would, would lie, I suppose, in this upside down winged horse pattern. Yeah. Yeah. What magnitude is that? Do you know offhand? I do not, but I'm going to say it's around seventh or so magnitude. I don't think it's possible to see it with the naked eye, but it's really quite easily visible in binoculars. Um, if you have a slightly larger telescope, like I think in the realm of like about a 10 or 12 inch or so, I think you can actually see P's one, which is a planetary nebula inside Messier 15 globular star cluster. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's a star that was uh, a sun-like star that uh, had lit, lived out its life and started giving material out into space. I've never hunted it down, uh, but my friend Clark, who's been on the show before, um, I think in his 12-inch, we've looked at this, if I'm recalling that correctly. Hmm. Interesting. I just looked up the magnitude of M15, and if you trust Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, it's 6.2. 6.2. So even a little bit brighter than I thought. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, good stuff. I guess maybe that would be on the threshold of what you could see visually from an extremely perfect site. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is a little bit smaller, uh, I think 18 arc seconds. Yeah. Um, so that, that would make it somewhat challenging visual, uh, like naked eye, but um, who knows? Uh, it would be interesting to try for it. That's for sure. Also up there is a, uh, is a galaxy cluster, Stefan's Quintet. It's not an orchestra cluster. It's a <laughs> they, they don't they don't sing barbershop songs. They they don't. But an inter interesting fact, nothing to do with astronomy, really. Interesting fact about <laughs> Stefan's Quintet is that um, when the first images of of Stefan's Quintet uh, galaxy cluster were being made, uh, I, I guess they're being made like maybe in the 30s or so. Um, in these, these emulsions, they, they really caught the public attention and they were sort of, um, you know, permeating pop culture at the time. And, uh, if you, if you're, if you're watching TV, I don't have television, but if you're, if you're watching, it's a wonderful life at Christmas time this year, and you catch the opening scenes, you can actually see an image of Stefan's quintet, I think taken at, um, Mount Wilson or Palomar, one of those places, I guess it would be Mount, Mount Wilson. 
And um, they kind of have each one lighting up and, and they're re- representative of the angels talking, I guess, at the opening of, uh, of the film. But it, it, they've actually, uh, you know, uh, manipulated Stephen's quintet to, to appear uh, as angels communicating with one another. Well, that is interesting. I did not know. Or, or not interesting. Okay, moving on. All right. <laughs> and we have, we have uh, NGC 7331. Now, do you know what NGC 7331? I never memorize any of the NGC numbers, so I don't think so. Mike was looking at this last night. I didn't look. I meant to walk over and look, but I, I get distracted by something I was looking at through my own telescope. And uh, that's called the Deerlick. Uh, ah, yes, yes. The Deerlick uh, cluster is yes. phenomenal. Like it's yeah. one of the prettiest photographic clusters, uh, in my opinion. Yes. So when when I see there's these three deer that like to hang out, uh, there's the mother deer and then the the fawns, and uh, so I'm like, oh, there's seven three three one, and it's companions again. All right, moving on. All right, Cassiopeia, the queen. What does Cassiopeia look like to you? Are you a W man? Or an M man. Well, you know, and and there's also an E man and a three man, uh, depending oh, on no. the time of the year. <laughs> there's no E. There's no E. You're that's that's yeah. Okay, fair enough. It, so uh, that's a stretch. What do, you, what do you see? I'm a W man. Uh, yeah. When I see it as an M, it's strange to me. But um, I think that the reason it's strange is it's an M during the colder months. And it's either cloudy or too cold to be outside here. So I'm not looking at the night sky as much during the cold months. Yeah. Yeah. It can be an upside down M as well. All right. And then uh, this is a Cassiopeia is, is the queen. It's a circumpolar constellation. Um, it's pretty far north. So it, it is, uh, I think it's going to be above the horizon for, for all but like extremely far southern uh, U.S. states. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, those below. Um, we do have listeners, uh, you know, in the Southern hemisphere as well. You're not going to see this, um, or at least not, I don't, I, I don't know how far South you'd have to go before it would disappear entirely. I think it'd go pretty far. Um, anyway, and, uh, yeah, you're actually looking at a portion inside the Milky Way when we're looking at this region of the sky, which is, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty rich, uh, region. We have, uh, also a, an old supernova remnant there from, uh, I think the, 1570s, the last really bright supernova that was observed by Tycho Brahe um, was in uh, was in this region of the sky in Cassiopeia, and they've they've captured it through non-visual uh, wavelengths. Um, you can't see this visually, but uh, but there's like these perfect, beautiful, rainbow-colored uh, images that are that are you know available online uh, to take a look at. But since that time, no. Um, and during the time of the telescope, no, uh, supernovas have been seen in our own Milky Way galaxy. What's cool about that is in Eurometria 1603, um, the famous star chart by Johann Baer, anyway, uh, he actually depicts the supernova there, even though it was long gone because he used, um, I think the Rudolphine tables or a preprint copy of the Rudolphine tables, which were Kepler's reduction of the, um, Tycho Brahe observations, um, to actually formulate a lot of the stars and star patterns for, uh, for, for the Uranometria star chart. So we ended up with um, a super bright version and a really cool representation of how bright that uh, supernova was. So uh, looking at this, this image of Uranometria that I have up, Shane, you can actually see there on the left at the chair point, um, you can actually see like how bright 
that supernova was in relation mm-hmm. to the other stars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would have been incredible. I, I hope in my lifetime, there's a, a supernova like that, um, you know, to a star that is nearby so that it becomes a, like a major, major event. It would be incredible to see something like that. That has to be one of the rarest things, you know, in astronomy, uh, at least for visual observers. Yeah. So the, the mythology around uh, Cassiopeia is that Cepheus and Cassiopeia were placed next to each other among the stars, along with Andromeda. And uh, uh, Cassiopeia was placed up there as punishment for enraging Poseidon. What's weird is that in the, in the Greek mythology, people, are, people and, and creatures and different things are placed in the sky as punishment and as reward uh, as well, sort of like an equal sprinkling. And um, anyway, she, she had been bragging about Andromeda, her daughter, and there, there was a big falling out because of this. I'm not going to get into it. Lots of There's other planetary nebula up there. And uh, I was looking at Messier 52 last night. That's quite a beautiful and bright uh, open cluster up in Cassiopeia. I'm not sure if you have any recent recollections of it no not really um no nothing stands out on my part yeah i was scanning through with the with the mini borg and uh you can get such huge swaths of skies mm-hmm. looking at you know the double cluster and stock uh two and perseus and and just panning all over the place up there um then we have the heart and soul as well on the Cassiopeia Perseus uh, border. And these are uh, these large uh, emission uh, nebula cluster regions. And uh, they look really beautiful through photographs, but uh, visually they're just sort of brighter patches. And then we have that, uh, I think it's NGC 281, which is, I think it's the Pac-Man nebula. Yeah, I think that sounds right. I think this is, is this a hidden treasure in Oliver's book? IC 11, I think is... Being uh, nebulosity of the Pac-Man. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. mixing that up with something else. But, but. but 281, I think, is in uh, is a hidden treasure. If I'm... I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it is one of the one of the hidden treasures. But Cassiopeia is just such a rut, a rich, rich area of uh, of the nighttime sky. You know, um, with the Milky Way cutting through lots of bright and dark lanes. Um, but you really need to get to a dark site to be able to uh, begin pulling this stuff out. And then if you get to sort of an ultra dark site, um, you could almost lose that bright W of Cassiopeia for all the faint stars that you can see now. It, it's a phenomenal constellation. And I got to say, like for, for us Northern hemisphere observers, I think we usually focus our attention to the Southern sky and the Eastern sky and try to, you know, catch whatever constellations are visible for that season. And we, I think we uh, wrongly ignore like Cassiopeia, uh, Draco, uh, Ursa Major, uh, because they're always there. We can observe those any time of the year. And, you know, the, the year you wrote that article about uh, Cassiopeia and, and there's 15 objects or whatever to observe, um, that just really opened my mind. Like, man, got to spend more time on these constellations that are always visible, particularly Cassiopeia, because there's so much to see there. It is just yeah. a rich area of the sky. Yeah, don't ignore your stars. Never. All right. Then we have, uh, moving along, we have Andromeda, which sits between Cassiopeia and Pegasus. And I kind of come to this next because uh, Pegasus with the giant square is pretty easy to pull out. People may have already figured out Cassiopeia before uh, before they, they encounter us trying to help them learn more stars. Um, and then sitting right between is, uh, is, is the stars of Andromeda. And Andromeda was, you know, mythology was chained to, to a rock. And, uh, and, and eventually saved by the hero Perseus. 
And in one version of the story, um, uh, Medusa's uh, head was used to turn the sea monster that was coming for Andromeda um, in, into stone. But anyway, I'm not really that much for the for the mythological uh, aspects of it, Shane. But what is what is the big thing to see in Andromeda? M31, the Andromeda galaxy is incredible. Um, you can see it naked eye under a dark sky. In fact, last night, Chris, when I was camping, that might've been one of the best naked eye observations I've ever had of um, Andromeda. It was, it was really like incredible how apparent it was. Hmm. Um, but you know, if you start to put some telescope optics on Andromeda, um, you can see a couple of other galaxies nearby M32, M110. Um, but if you have even more aperture, uh, what is super cool about Andromeda, and there's a there's a couple other galaxies like this, but you can start to observe some um, deep sky objects that live within that galaxy. So, like you know, we're talking about M15, and you know, M13 is another big globular. There's some globulars that we can observe that uh, reside within the Andromeda galaxy, which is just such a cool thing to do. Yeah, and, and good observers like yourself. Uh, I know Mark, who was on the show a few weeks ago, I think he he talked about hunting down one of those globular clusters. And the one thing I like to look at, this is actually a little bit easier, is uh, NGC 206, which yeah. forms like the the far left or left star of, uh, of a triangle between, uh, I think it's uh, M31, a bright star, and anyway, another region. But uh, it's pretty easy to find um, Andromeda. I find like you come off... Um, that top left or the uh, sort of the north uh, easterly star uh, of the Great Square of Pegasus, which, by the way, that star is uh, a star in the constellation of Andromeda. And then if you come off there, there's kind of like these sets of stars. And then the Andromeda galaxy kind of is on the, the sort of the second set of these, these sort of stars that kind of arc up. And it's really midway between that top left or north Easter star of Eastern star of uh, the square of Pegasus and, um, and Cassiopeia it's sort of like right in between. And it's like this fuzzy, hazy uh, kind of area is pretty, pretty apparent once you sort of know generally where to look even. Mm-hmm. And, and because you hate double stars, I have to mention uh, all Mac. Um, and I know you don't hate double stars. I'm talking fun. <laughs> I'm going to get but- hate mail now. Yes, yes, I hope you do. And to Chris, um, who hates double stars. Pox in your house. <laughs> um, if you've never looked at All Mac before, look at All Mac. It's in Andromeda. I think, and this is very subjective, but I think it's one of the prettiest double stars uh, that you can observe. Um, if you like uh, Alberio and Cygnus because of the color differences, I think that the Almac um, system is even better. Um, one is a very icy blue. The other one is kind of an orangey, maybe bordering on red. And um, I just think that the color in Almac really pops uh, even more significantly than in uh, Alberio. So it's easy to find. If you've, if you've never looked at it, add it to your observing list. Cool. What's next? Aquarius. Aquarius constellation of the water bearer i really like aquarius this is like one of my favorite autumn constellations I think really this might be my, yeah okay. I, I i really like it. it i think it has a lot of historical significance and it's got some interesting stuff it has messier too with uh with within it and 
there's like this this water jar. It's called the water jar. It doesn't to me. It doesn't look like a water jar. I guess maybe to the ancients it did because maybe the like amphorest vases or something were maybe shaped like that, and it's on its edge, so it's spilling out the water. I guess you can kind of sort of see it. Um, but it is it is an interesting pattern of stars. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to describe that pattern of stars. It kind of has these three stars in a sideways triangle. They're pretty tight. They're fairly bright. They point to, um, I think it's Eta uh, Aquarii, and then um, they point back towards Alpha Aquarii. And then if you kind of go just over that same distance again back from Eta to Alpha, you'll get to M2, kind of points to it, just forms like a natural pointer. I just really like that. Down below, we have NGC 7009, which is just above Capricornus, and then M72, which is a globular, and M73, which is a, a double star. But uh, M7009 is the Saturn Nebula. I'm not sure. Have you ever looked at the Saturn Nebula before? Yeah, a long time ago. Um, if I remember correctly, it, it just sort of looked, um, I don't know, almost ovalish, like it was, you know, not quite a, a circle. Yeah. When I lived in Ontario, a friend of mine, Peter Picure, had built a 25-inch lowrider Dobsonian. And so you could sit comfortably in a chair and view all over the sky or or stand at some points. Uh, It was was a little bit awkward to use. It kind of sort of took... uh, took two, two people to kind of sort of move it properly. He, he had it down, but when, when he wasn't there and he, he was very kind to let me just kind of sit and observe through it one night. And, uh, and he put it on 7,009 and I just kind of observed NGC 7,009 for a long time. And I don't know if anybody else out there has spent time observing NGC 7,009 through a 25 inch telescope, but you, you can see what are called the ANSI, which kind of look like the rings, um, you know, in, in relation to, to Saturn around that, uh, that nebula. And that is a pretty magical experience. Let me tell you. Um, I just, I pulled up some data on how many people have looked at 7,009 <laughs> for a long period of time through a 25 inch. And the result is, uh, very few, very few, yeah. very few. Yeah. I would imagine, um, it's sort of awkwardly placed, right? Cause typically, well, here anyway, it's going to be pretty low. And, and this telescope was like an observer's telescope. It was just, it's such a beautiful, well, I don't think it really exists anymore. I think he's like reconfigured it or reconfiguring it. Um, but like I said, you could sit very comfortably and then just, just observe through it. Um, once it was pointed at the object, kind of getting a point, it was a little bit, a little bit dodgy, but once you get a point at something, it's kind of meant to point at an object and then observe it for a long time. Like, like, I think, you know, maybe we'd spend a night looking at half a dozen or so objects through it. But when you have a 25 inch telescope at your disposal, you really want to spend a long time looking at things. Like we spent a long time looking at the ring nebula, trying to see the, the star, the central star. I'm still not sure if I saw it, but I could see like tons of stars in the, in the ring structure itself. Um, There was a lot of stars. I'm not sure if I saw the central star. We spent some time looking at, uh, you know, like the veil and, and, you know, the M27 planetary nebula and M73 and, and some different things like that. It was just like a magical uh, experience, but also like you don't need a 25 inch telescope to enjoy Aquarius because it's got these sets of three stars that form the water. If you get a chart and you look at um, maybe some of the old charts of Aquarius, you can kind of try to trace out the, the pattern, it's it's well depicted in uh, Johann Baer's Urinometria 1603. And, uh, you know, it. I always wondered why they put this water 
pattern and where is this water? And this is just a bunch of hokum. But I found that if you actually look at these sets of stars um, from a really dark site in the autumn, when, when the skies are changing from being warm to being cool and, uh, and the sky begins to shimmer a bit, it almost does take on the appearance of flowing water, or maybe I've convinced myself of that, but I think that's pretty cool. And that's just something you can see with your eye. You don't need a, you know, a big telescope to, uh, to see it. Another uh, water-type constellation up there, Shane, is uh, Pisces Austrinus, the, the southern fish. Yes. Okay. Okay. And uh, it's got this bright star, Fomalo, but um, mostly we use this to actually find um, as sort of a pointer star um, or pointer set of stars to finding um, that large planetary of the, uh, the helix which is up in Aquarius. So they kind of uh, dovetoe quite well to, to start tracing out and seeing some of the stuff in, uh, in Aquarius. And then as Aquarius uh, gets into the meridian or the highest point in the nighttime sky, then what we can do is we can, uh, we can t- take a look at uh, Fomalo and, and kind of that pattern of stars and then work our way up to, uh, I think it's uh, the Helix Nebula there, which is just about uh, seven or eight degrees maybe a little bit further, more like nine degrees northwest of, uh, of Fomalo. And Fomalo, uh, well, the helix nebula, first of all, is a large planetary nebula. It's the closest planetary nebula to us. Its NGC number is 7293. It's in Aquarius. The helix nebula is in Aquarius. But um, to find it, I use um, the southern fish there and and. Uh, the Fomalo and uh, and other stars of, uh, of of that constellation to to find it. So, wow, the helix. I keep meaning to look at it, but the past two sessions that I've had at my dark site, we've had cloud in the south and haven't been able to bother even even going down it. For uh, do you have any kind of memorable observations of it? No, not really. That's that's one I've not spent much time looking at, to be honest. Oh, I've spent a long time looking at it. It was like I always would see photos of it. And I remember um, first trying to track it down and, and, and failing miserably. And uh, I don't know, I, I always think that those of us who are visual observers come together um, over failure. And, and I definitely am someone who has a lot of failure. <laughs> and so so it, it was one of those things where it really spurred me on to really try to, try to see it because I had so much trouble seeing it. It was one of those... Um, you know, the Helix Nebula is one of those sort of book cover or, mm-hmm. or you know, very popular uh, images that you see in, uh, in, in the magazines and, and anything to do with astronomy. It's, it's just such a beautiful uh, nebula around this very faint star. And so I, and, I, and I knew that people had seen it. I just had to see it, um, but I struggled so much. And it took me uh, a lot of time and an attention to eventually see it with my uh, eight-inch Dobsonian, and I, I don't know why, but it was just like it was almost like by not being able to see it so easy, I was like, okay, I want to be like one of the people who's seen this because I know that a lot of people, if if they went out just to look and didn't see it that first night and the second night and the third night, I remember just failing and failing and having to wait until another new moon period. And the problem is, is that it's so big. I think it's uh, a couple times the diameter of our, of our full moon, the extent that you can actually see it. it's this huge round 
very faint ball, but it's not that faint. I think it's like only around like fifth something magnitude, but it's so large that that, that brightness is spread out over such a huge swath of sky. And there's one of those things where, you know, once I learned to see it, you know, it became easy and I was able to see it, you know, from a town and I'm able to, to pick it up in my binoculars from just a reasonably dark site now. But at first, just that first glimpse was just so hard to get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's cool to see. It's a big planetary. It's huge, nearest one to us. And uh, that that uh, faint star in the middle, it, it is visible in uh, moderate uh, amateur telescopes. Moving on to FOMLO, beautiful, bright white star, sort of a bluish white, one of those icy blue white stars that you say uh, so eloquently, Shane. And and orbiting around that, and you can't see this, is is also a planet. Um, I think it was back in, in the early 2000s, they started using the Hubble to track this disk of material around Fomalo, and they found that there's some bright um, clumps and that these clumps are, are probably planets or early planets uh, forming around Fomalo. So there's another star in the autumn sky that you can see just with your unaided eye from any city because it's very bright. And, uh, and it's, it's a star that has, uh, that has a, a disk around it uh, and early planet formation. All right. Set us the whale. So set us the whale. This is going to be our last constellation. So we've gone through a lot of constellations here. It's gone swimmingly. Notice my water theme. Oh, yes. Couldn't, couldn't what I miss it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about set us the whale? Whale? No whale? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah. Um, don't see it. Sorry. No. I think it's, a, it's an interesting pattern, though. It sort of has this... It has this pattern. There's there's these patterns that seem to repeat. I don't know. They're, they're like penta, pentagons. I guess they're pentagons. And there's there's a, there's one in Pisces. There's one in Cetus. There's one up in Draco, the dragon. And uh, this this one has um, this other pentagon. I think it's like ten or twelve degrees across, something like that. Um, and Cetus may have originally been associated with a whale, going back right back to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamian times and uh and and sometimes it's called a sea monster uh, the one that was slain by perseus when he was saving uh, andromeda from back from those myth times there's all these other little constellations around it too but um sort of the claim to fame of cetus is that it's home to mira and mira is one of the best examples of a variable star and this type of variable star is named after mira it's a mira variable star and mira is sort of the uh the, the, the sort of prototypical example of this. And there's about six or 7,000 of these red giants um, that range in, uh, in these periodic um, brightness and, and dimmings uh, that range from about 80 to more than a thousand days. Have you ever watched uh, Mira go through a cycle, Shane? No, I have not. I haven't either, but you know, sometimes in some of the lists, the email lists and in online communities I belong to, they say, okay, Mira is at its brightness or Mira is, uh, going to be dimming down or it's going to, and so I've gone out and looked and then a few nights later, gone out and looked and one night it's there and a few nights later or a while later, it's not, or a month later, whatever it is, it's not, I forget what the cycle is exactly. I should have that in here, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really so much for the variable star observing, but for people that are, or are interested in observing variable stars, if you go to the AAVSO uh, website, you can find out more about Mira and other variable stars. And, and maybe that's going to be your bag for astronomy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it's a very interesting 
um, category of objects to observe and certainly my most neglected. Yeah. There, there's some galaxies up there because you're, you're looking out into getting close to the winter sky because you can actually use um, Aldebaran and some of the stars in Taurus to point towards Alpha and Mira and M77 is sort of in between Alpha, or Alpha Sedai and Mira, um, which is a giant spiral um, galaxy that's up there in Cetus. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of getting bordering you're kind of bordering into the, into the winter sky here. But my favorite thing to look at in Cetus is called the cosmic question mark, which is an asterism. Have you seen this? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is. It is so neat. It looks like a question mark and it's very reminiscent. I I always think of this. It's like the autumn early winter version of the coat hanger cluster. And I was so surprised that so few, this is like sort of one of the lesser known um, asterisms up there. And when you first point your binoculars at it, it's a binocular thing because you need about a four or five degree um, field to, to, to see it in because um, it extends over three degrees. And so you really need to frame it. Um, it's easy to find. It's right in that Pentagon head of Cetus, or I guess, yeah, I call it the head. Maybe it's the tail. I don't know which direction this, this constellation is going. And, uh, but if you point your, your binoculars at, you can just look up cosmic question mark and set us and, and be able to find it, but it does look like a big question mark. gang. It does. Yeah. It's unmistakable. It leaves no question in my mind that that's Mm -hmm. what it is. And with that, I'm going to conclude. I'm like starting to get pretty tired here. It was a long night last night. We had a good time observing though. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that kind of concludes our sort of, uh, tour of the autumn sky. Uh, anything to add Shane or any comments or did we leave anything out? No, I think we hit on a lot of really cool things to look at. Um, the, the autumn sky is, is a, is a great time to observe, right? It, it's pretty much dark shortly after supper time and we can observe any night that's clear and there's just so much to see. So it's one of my favorite time of the years to be out. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. And we've had some, uh, we've had pretty good weather. Like even though last night there was some high thin haze and, and the odd cloud kicking around. Uh, when I went out last night, we had uh, Aurora at the start while I set up and it quickly uh, went away. And then, uh, you know, it was cool. Like it was minus two, minus three, but it, uh, it was very, very still. So there was no wind at all. Um, we did get a little bit of frosty dew, but, uh, yeah, other than that, it was a pretty good session last night. So yeah, with that, uh, maybe we'll call it a podcast. Sounds good, Chris. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Sheen. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.